I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide, they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. want to thank uh, Jeff for coming and leading us this morning. For those from Move Church, you'll recognize Jeff's face. He's a friend that comes and leads for us every once in a while. For those from Beckwith and, and uh, guests this morning, he's uh, been a good friend for years and just thankful when he comes. And I think actually uh, after this morning, Jeff holds, he holds some kind of record because I don't think anyone has started a prayer from church as, I saw this in your bathroom. And then goes into prayer. So he holds some kind of record uh, after that this morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mentioned last week that we would be putting on, if you were here last week, we'd be putting our Sermon on the Mount series on hold until January, at which point we'll, we'll finish it. And some of you are like, finally, we've been in it since the beginning of the summer. Uh, and so we're going to complete that series in January. But I put it on hold for now because I wanted to do something that we, at least as Move Church, uh, have not done in the past, and that is an entire series focusing on the Advent season, uh, which begins today and goes until Christmas Eve. And I'll tell you why I wanted to do this series this year when we have not done it in the past. Uh, it actually began with me speaking to June, uh, I think it was last week, talking about doing readings and, and lighting the different Advent candles each week of the month of December, starting today as we did this morning. And this is something that Beckwith, I believe, has, has always done. Uh, while we at Move Church, this is not something that we have done in the past. And, and that's largely in part because of my own background and, and the church that I came to faith in. It was a church that didn't put much emphasis on Advent. And so it's, it's not something that's been overly on my radar. 
and, and so this is one of those realities, right, that we've been talking about recently uh, of Romans 14, right, where one will kind of exalt one day, whereas others will see all days as the same, kind of that Christian conscience reality. And, and, and so that's what uh, this kind of reality is, where one church will focus on Advent, where one may not, uh, may just do kind of a Christmas Eve series. But in my heart, kind of what's grown over my years as being a follower of Christ is coming from a, a church that uh, is maybe a bit more modern. Uh, I, I've grown over the years in the love and beauty of the traditions of the Christian church that I wasn't exposed to uh, when I first came to faith. And so I, I think there's this beauty in tradition, so long as it does not become about right the tradition itself, but that tradition is used as a catalyst to point us to what it is meant to point us to. So I've been excited uh, leading up to this morning at the prospect of a greater focus on Advent this year. And as I reflected on it, you know, I just kind of felt compelled to let's go all in this year. We're just going to go all in on it. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to consider together. Uh, through reflection, as we did this morning, through song, and through the sermon, uh, the uniqueness of this season for followers of Christ, so that we as a people can share deeply in the rich themes that are a part of this season, themes of hope and love and peace and joy. And, and listen, when I, when I say those things, hope, love, peace, and joy, they're not just these, these nice sentiments. Right? It's not just about feeling warm and fuzzy, like these are nice things to focus on. It's so much greater than that, right? Because these are things that Jesus Christ brought into the world when he came. These are things that his people can lay hold of because of the work that he has done on the cross. And so this is one of the reasons why I want to do this series this season, a bit more of a personal reason. Uh, but there's also a, a corporate reason for why I want to focus on this series this year as well, and it's because of this. I think there has never been a time, at least in my lifetime, and probably a lot of your lifetimes, where we as a people need to stare into what Advent means and be reminded of the great light that has come in the midst of the darkness that is around us. Right? Our world, like we as individuals, we as families, we as churches, we've been through the ringer over the last couple of years. Right? We've been through a lot of stuff and with this pandemic. And I don't know where uh, many people land on it, but what I do know is there's not very many people that have made it through this season unscathed. Right? We've kind of all come out of this season with battle wounds. Right? Whatever your personal convictions and thoughts are on COVID and the, the handling of COVID, uh, I, I think wherever you land, we can all agree that this has been a situation that has deeply affected people to an extent both locally and globally that we just haven't seen up to now for decades and decades. Right? The casualty list is extensive from this past season. There are those who have been directly impacted by the virus itself, having to battle through sickness, sometimes severe. There are those who have lost loved ones as a result of the virus. Others have lost jobs, right? Maybe because of lockdowns or because of the, the mandates that are now happening, right? Surgeries and procedures that have been postponed due to the pandemic have left people suffering for prolonged seasons. And, and some have died because they haven't got the treatment that they've needed. 
Right? The amount of people struggling with mental health issues has skyrocketed over the last two years. People are struggling with fear, whether it be fear of the virus itself or the government's response to the virus and the, the segregation that's occurring with the vaccine passports, wondering how far is this going to go? Right, from statistics as well as personal pastoral accounts, especially from those who minister in more difficult neighborhoods, we know that the lockdowns have had a severe negative impact on people. There's been an increase in suicide. There's been an increase in substance abuse, domestic abuse. There's been a breakdown of marriages. There's been negative effects on our children from being out of school and away from fans. People are more anxious than they've been, more stressed than they've been. We're more polarized than we've been in a long time. And many are less healthy, whether mentally, emotionally, or physically than they were two years ago. Some families have been torn apart by differing responses to COVID. Within the church, we've seen churches torn apart because of different responses and thoughts about COVID. And so one thing I know about this pandemic is that we've all been touched by it. In one way or another, it has affected us. And it's in these seasons it's in times like the one we're in right now where we need to lift our eyes up, right? We need to lift our eyes up beyond our difficulties, beyond our circumstances. And I don't mean that in some sort of ignorant way as though we ignore what's going on with us. We don't ignore what's going on with us and, and just hope that they go away. But in the midst of these things, we have this undergirding promise that holds us fast as we walk through them that lifts our eyes up beyond our circumstances. When we face such seasons as we have faced, we need something greater, right? We need something greater than our circumstance. We need something greater than sickness, greater than worry, greater than doubt, greater than loss, and, and greater than the darkness that seems to cling so closely at times. And that is what Advent is all about. It is pressing into the reality that we do have something greater, right? We have someone greater, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's because of him and him alone that darkness that so often seems to be prevailing, especially in difficult seasons, will ultimately not prevail. Because the light has come. The true light. The one who gives light to all the world. The one who will restrain darkness until it is ultimately and completely cast into the pits of hell. We have a hope that we can bank our lives on. Our Savior who is victorious, who though we may walk at times through the valley of the shadow of death, through deep darkness, we can confidently say with David, he is with me because he has promised that much to us when we trust him. And because that is true, we need not fear our circumstances, nor sickness, nor worry, nor loss, nor that darkness that seems to cling so close. We cast those off in the truth of Jesus' marvelous light. This is what Psalm 27.1 tells us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? If those are glorious words from David. Those are glorious words that every follower of Christ can lay hold of, like even in the deepest of darkness, the light of Christ shines through, and nothing will come against it. You know, Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, 
which means arrival, or it means to come. It is a time of both commemoration and anticipation. Because it's in this season that we look back, right, and we commemorate Jesus' incarnation. When he came in the form of human flesh as a babe in the manger, God's only son, dwelling among sinful men and women in order to save the world through himself. And that is a glorious truth that we can stare into, that we can focus heavily on in the Christmas season. But that's not everything that we focus on in the Christmas season. Because for followers of Jesus, commemoration is only half of the story of Advent. You know why? Because we live on this side of the cross. We live on the finished side of the cross. And so for us, not only is Advent commemoration, but it is also a season of anticipation because that Jesus who came as a baby, who did the work on the cross, he's coming again. And so for us, it is a season of anticipation that he's going to come and he's going to put the final nail in the work that he has done and seal it for eternity. And we have such a hope in that. And so this season reminds us that Jesus who has come is coming again. We're like the Old Testament people of Israel who longed for their Messiah. We long for our second coming of our King in all of his glory. And this promise gives us hope. A real sustaining hope that lifts our eyes up, that lifts our heads up, that pivots our disposition to look beyond the present darkness, beyond the muck and the mire of this world, because we have seen a great light. We can say that we have walked in darkness, that we have dwelt in deep darkness on us. A light has shone. And he doesn't only give light to us, he gives light to the whole world. And this is magnificent. This is what Advent is all about. And so if you haven't picked it up by now, uh, today's theme of Advent is hope. Right? So hopefully you're already feeling a little bit more hopeful this morning. Right? And so my hope for you this morning is that God's just going to bolster your hope in him. And, and, and if you are here and, and you don't know Jesus, I pray God would reveal the hope to you that you can have in Christ and Christ alone when you place your faith in him. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing that I know that's true about every single person here. There's a couple things that are true about hope. And the first is that we all hope. Right? That is a universal human condition. We all hope. We all have longings. We all have yearnings. And every one of us must understand that. We are always hoping in something or something. Our hearts will lay hold of whatever we believe will sustain us. Whatever we believe will keep us going, especially in dark seasons. And the, the problem is that we so often place our hope in really weak and puny things that do not last and therefore cannot sustain. If your ultimate hope is in something created, it will ultimately lead to loss. Because when we hope in lesser things, we are actually holding to a much smaller view of hope than what the Bible says we can have. We're holding to a worldly view of hope. Let me explain that a little bit. I was listening to an interview just the other day 
of a famous singer. And he was talking about when he became famous and as he grew up, he realized that all of his hope was in one thing. That he had placed all of his hope in music. And he realized that he needed to diversify from music. And so the way he was going at it was, okay, I can't put all of my eggs in one basket. I need to diversify. I need to have investments. I need to be in business. I need to have other things going on so that if one of those things crashes, all of my identity isn't in that. I've got other things that are going to sustain me. And I was listening. I was thinking, okay, that makes sense from a worldly perspective, but but under his assertions of saying, well, I, I put hope in all of these things, the reality is he didn't know whether any of his, those things would really actually sustain and could really actually do what he needed them to do. He couldn't know. Everything could just fall apart at once altogether. He has no idea. You know, hope always has to do with a future desire, a future desire of something that we want. And ultimately, the worldly reality of hope is that it is an expression of uncertainty. There's no way you can have certainty in it. You can hear it in the way you say it. I hope this happens. I hope my kids grow up to be this. I hope my spouse is this. I hope my life, I hope I get this. I hope this makes me happy, and so on and so on. These are all expressions of uncertainty. And they, they lack an assurance. They will always lack an assurance. And when there's a lack of assurance, guess what happens? Our, our hope will start to waver. We'll never have a solid hope the way we can. In contrast to the world, the biblical view of hope, the hope that is available in Christ, <coughs> sorry, in Christ and Christ alone, is not just a desire that we have. It's not an expression of, of uncertainty. It is a confident assurance of a future outcome. That's what our hope in Jesus is. It is a confident assurance in a future outcome. Biblical hope is not to say, I hope in this. It is to say, I know this. I can stake my life on this. I have a confident assurance that this will come to pass. And we can have this kind of confident hope because it is based on God, not man. It is based on he who is unwavering, he who never changes. Right? It's based on the creator, not the creator. When our hope is rooted in the things that are above where it should be, it is rooted in God. It is rooted in what he decreed, what God has ordained. And what God has promised, what God has decreed, what God has ordained will always come to pass. And so it is a confident hope. It is an assurance. It's a hope that is unshakable because of the foundation that it's on. This is what Hebrews 6.19 calls it. It says, it's a hope that is an anchor for our soul. It is firm. It is secure. It is a hope that will not be moved. Even in the worst storms of life, that anchor holds us fast. The second thing that I know that's true about hope is that where you place your hope will directly correlate to the amount of joy that you have in life. Think back, for those who were here just three or four weeks ago, in the Sermon on the Mount series, we were talking about the reality of treasure. Right? Jesus teaches on our treasure. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It, it's the same idea. 
Whatever you treasure brings you joy. And so you can treasure things on earth or you can treasure things in heaven. One is lasting, one is not. Right? We can treasure either temporal things or lasting things that will bring us lasting joy. And I want to talk about more, more on joy. I, I would preach that sermon this morning if we had time, but we don't. I'm going to talk about joy in like three weeks, I think, two weeks. We'll, we'll go into that theme of joy more. But, but what I want to do over this series is, is I want to look at the most famous prophecy from the incarnation of Jesus uh, that we read at Christmas time. Mary Ellen just read it for us this morning, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. And, and I want to take a portion of it each week. And, and it just launches us into the different themes that we see throughout the month of Advent. So to begin, I want to give us some background on the message of Isaiah so we can understand the context that he is prophesying in. And we can have that before us over the next several weeks as we keep returning back to this verse. And then today we're just going to look at Isaiah 9, 1-2 on the theme of hope. So some, some background on Isaiah and Isaiah's message. We know from Isaiah's own hand that, that he prophesied during the reign of four different Judean kings. So Isaiah 1, 1, he tells us, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, so that gives us a timeline when he was prophesying. First of all, we know that it was after the split of the nation of Israel into two separate kingdoms. Right? Israel became the kingdom of the north, and Judah was the kingdom of the south. There were ten tribes that made up the kingdom of Israel. There were two tribes that made up the kingdom of Judah. And this split happened around 930 B.C. for you other history nuts out there, if you want to know the specifics. Uh, and it was a result of Solomon's unfaithfulness to the Lord. Right? God had made David a promise that so long as his sons were faithful, he would always have a son on the throne. And Solomon, David's son, squandered it. The very next generation completely squandered the promise of God, and it led to the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. And so taking the details of what Isaiah gives us in verse 1 and pairing it with info from other books of the Old Testament that tell us when the kings ruled, uh, we know that Isaiah began prophesying around 739 B.C. So this is almost 200 years after the split of the kingdom and 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Isaiah's writings begin with a preface. Is it preface or preface? I never know. Preface? I, both are good. I never know. I, I was like looking at my notes. I don't know how to say that word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to muddle it up on Sunday. All right, don't judge me. Isaiah's writings begin with a preface or preface from, from chapter 1 to chapter 5, which contains uh, kind of a, a general state of the nation. Right? He doesn't list any specific events in the first five chapters of his book, but gives a general reflection on the attitude of God's people and their relationship with the Lord. And, and honestly, Isaiah's report is not very encouraging. Right? We, we very quickly get an understanding for why Isaiah was sent by God to prophesy to Judah and Jerusalem. Prophets uh, had the role of being God's mouthpiece to his people, calling them to repentance, telling them to return back 
to the Lord. And so here's a quick rundown for you of Isaiah's preface, his little state of the nation. So in chapter 1, Isaiah condemns God's people for what they had become. He says they are rebellious, they are corrupt, they were physically sick and suffering with pestilence as a result of their sin. They were unclean. They'd given themselves over to evil. Right? Not a good dating profile if you were looking for someone to date. Ultimately, Isaiah declares God's people are not what they should be. Right? And then in chapter 2, we see Isaiah point to a picture of what the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, was meant to be. It was meant to be this light to the world. It was meant to be an example for other nations and peoples that was guarded and governed by truth and peace. But instead of being a light and transforming the world, the city of Zion and God's people had instead conformed to the world. And as a result of that, God decrees judgment in Isaiah chapter 2. Which brings us then to chapter 3 where Isaiah soberly warns of God removing his provision and his protection from Judah. In the first four verses, he gives specifics of how God would destabilize the country as judgment for their sin. It says in verse 1 to 4, For behold, the, God, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. It's a decree of how God would destabilize the country as a result of their sin. Now it's important to note that Throughout the first three chapters, and then largely in chapter 4, there is hope that is sprinkled in amongst a lot of the, the somber decrees of God. There is hope that God won't abandon his people. There's hope of a fresh beginning. There's hope of a cleansing from sin and the bringing forth of a new creation. Hope of a preservation of a remnant that belongs to the Lord. And that string of hope remains until chapter 5. In chapter 5, Isaiah writes in parables communicating six woes over what he calls the Lord's vineyard, which is representing Judah and Jerusalem. And it consists of this devastating realization that the Lord could not have done more for his people than what he had already done. And even in the midst of everything that he had done for them, all of the good that he had shown them, his people still gave themselves over to evil. And chapter 5 ends with a depiction of utter darkness. It ends with a picture of darkness having the last word and the curtain falling on God's people. So then we have to ask, well, what happened to that hope? It was sprinkled in throughout that. And what, what happened to the promise of the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of man's faithlessness? Well, that's where we turn to chapter 6. And this begins the next section of Isaiah's prophecy. And it's considered 
the, the beginning of his main writing and his main prophecy to the kingdom of Judah. And in chapter 6, it opens with a magnificent event. One man, Isaiah himself, being cleansed of sin. We've all read it. It's one of the most famous chapters in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord sitting upon his throne, and he realizes, I am utterly unworthy to look upon the Lord, and I deserve to die. But instead of judgment, he didn't receive judgment. He received grace. Grace was given to him in the form of a burning coal. It was taken by an angel from the altar and touched to his lips. And as it was touched to his lips, it was accompanied with the words, Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah, after this happens, is then commissioned to go and prophesy to God's people. And over the next several chapters, we see him doing that. And by the end of chapter 12, one sinner cleansed from chapter 6, transforms into a community of people singing a song of salvation to the Lord. So how did darkness give way to a song of salvation? The theme of darkness and the theme of depravity continued in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And by the end of chapter 8, it ends the same way as chapter 5, utter darkness. 8.22, it says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But the darkness of chapter 8 gives way very quickly to a hope at the beginning of chapter 9, which is the prophecy that we just read. Look at the, the words in verse 22 of chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, those, those words specifically gloom and anguish and darkness. And look at how Isaiah picks up those same words in 9, 1 to 2. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You know, there are two different times that the Lord speaks of through Isaiah in verse 1 of chapter 9. The Lord speaks of a former time, and he speaks of a latter time. And they're vague in there. It doesn't give specifics. But we know one had already happened. It was a former time. And we know there was this one that had not occurred yet, this latter time that was coming. And so what was the former time? Well, because Isaiah mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali, which were settlements around the Sea of Galilee on Judah's border, it's likely referring to the fall of the kingdom of Israel, or Judah, to the Assyrian Empire when they conquered the land. Zebulun and Naphtali would have been the first areas that would have been conquered by the advancing army. And so imagine the gloom. Imagine the anguish of the kingdom lost. The Lord brought contempt upon his people as a result of their sin, as a result of their rebellion. And they were walking in utter darkness. The Lord brought upon them even more darkness. 
this deep darkness that Isaiah refers to. And then literally, it's actually translated the shadow of death. So this is the former time. This is what Isaiah is talking about, a time that had already happened. When then is the latter time? Isaiah says, in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, sometimes translated Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah is talking about the same location here as he was in the former time. But now he refers to it as the area of Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, it's interesting. Isaiah is the only one to refer to the land in that exact way. So what's he pointing to? Well, our answer comes 700 years later. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 to 16. Again, if you have your Bibles, pay close attention to the wording. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has shone. This is one of those marvelous pictures of God's word. One of those incredible threads that you see through scripture. God, through the prophet Isaiah, decreed that in a latter time, that gloom would give way to glory. Because there was a light that would come. And that light was his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled a prophecy written 700 years before that. Before he was even born. Right? This is why I say our hope is a confident expectation It's not a wonder if it's going to happen. It's a confident expectation. We don't know when, but it will happen. 700 years later, this is fulfilled. This is the latter time that Isaiah is pointing to. And he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Do you want to know why Isaiah used the distinction Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles? He's the only one, as I said, that referred to the land as this in this way. And Matthew so keenly picks up on it and repeats it because the Holy Spirit at work within Isaiah was revealing that that though he was prophesying to the kingdom of Judah, God's plan was so much bigger. And it wasn't just for the kingdom of Judah. It was for the whole world, right? It included the Gentiles. And though God's people had failed to be the light of the world that they were supposed to be, had failed to transform the world, being a beacon of light to everyone else and righteousness to everyone else, in God's faithfulness, he would raise up one from amongst his people who would fulfill his plan, who would fulfill that call. God's plan remained, and much like his people Israel were called to be a light of the world, the great light of the world came through and in Jesus Christ. And what did he then do? He commissioned his people 
same way God had commissioned his people, Jesus commissions us, his followers, to go to all the nations, to go to all the tribes, go to all of the tongues, and proclaim to those who walk in deep darkness, there's a great light. There's a great light that came. This is what Advent's all about. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have faith in Jesus, maybe, maybe you've even been in church for years, but it's just something that you do on Sunday. Maybe you're, just, you're here because you're here with your family. It doesn't affect your life outside of these walls. Maybe you're here because your parents bring you. Maybe you just have to come to church on a Sunday. But you'd have to say you don't understand faith. You don't have a personal relationship in Jesus. Maybe you're hoping in the things of the world. Listen, such things will ultimately fail you. But there is a great light that will never fail you. There is a hope that will never fail, never fall, will always conquer. And the question is, how do we grasp hold of that great light that is Jesus Christ so that he remains with us in darkness? How can we walk in the unwavering hope that sustains even in the valley of the shadow of death? And thankfully, it's not a mystery, nor is it difficult. Upon the conclusion of quoting Isaiah's prophecy, Matthew records the words of Jesus, and they're very significant. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To receive the great light, the one who has come, to grasp hold of hope, it requires repentance. It requires turning it requires recognizing and turning away from our sin, turning away from darkness to walk in the marvelous light that has been revealed. It is a recognition that we don't only walk in darkness because the world is fallen. We walk in darkness more significantly because we are fallen. It's not just external darkness. It's internal darkness too. And to receive this hope, we must confess our sins. We must confess that we are utterly lost, that we are guilty, that we are rebellious before our creator, and we are in desperate need of his grace upon our lives. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, repent and fully grasp hold of the hope that we're going to talk about in this season. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, one of my favorite uh, historians and, and theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said the celebration of Advent is possible only for those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. To the majority here who are following Jesus, remember these aren't just nice words. These aren't just sentiments. These are age-old truths. Your hope is greater than the world's definition of hope. 
It is, it is not some sort of hope and uncertainty that we're clinging to. It is not a longing that maybe something will come to pass. It is an assurance. You can bank your life on it. You can stand firm on it. It is a foundation that through Jesus Christ, we have a confident hope. What God has decreed for his people will come to pass. Let it be an anchor for your soul in a very weary world. And then go and share that hope with others. Be that light that Jesus has called you to be. We have this future hope that is rooted in the salvation of Christ. That with him who came and fulfilled all of the Old Testament, he will come again. And he will hold us fast until that happens. Or until the day we die and we go to be before him after enduring a life in faith. We can trust this. We have a future hope of the return of Christ. We have a future hope of the resurrection of the dead. The redemption of the body. The redemption of all of creation. We have a hope of eternal glory. We have a hope of a life of eternity that is our inheritance. We have a hope that we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus himself. That one day we will dwell with the Lord, our Savior, and on that day, he will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Mourning will cease. No more crying. No more pain. All of these former things will have passed away. This is the anticipation that we have. This is the confident hope that we walk in. And so in this season and every other season, let it be an anchor for your soul that encourages you to endurance while you dwell in a land of darkness. Advent reminds us that the great light has come, but not just that he has come, that he's coming back. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that is available in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we glory in the work of the cross. We glory in this season that you saw fit to send your Son. For those who are rebellious, for those who are hateful towards you, For those who are utterly corrupt, you sent your Son in grace and in love that we may come to be with you and know you, not just now, but in eternity and forevermore. Father, remind us in these difficult seasons, maybe some here today are going through sickness, some here today are going through difficulty. There's probably so many untold things in here. We don't know, Lord, but you know. This morning, Father, I pray that you would bolster their hearts to hope. That you would lift up their eyes. That they would know that they have a Savior, that they have a King who knows them, who loves them, who is walking with them. Father, this hope that is alive in Jesus Christ that can never be taken from us. Oh God, we don't speak of sentiments this morning. We speak of hard-won truths. 
truths that we can stand on as a foundation because they came from your mouth. It's your plan and your son has accomplished it. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name.